This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, we so love our pets, don't we? We love our dogs. We want them to be with us always. But that's not the case because depending on what kind of dog you have, you just don't know how many years that dog is going to be with you. Why is that? Why is it different between pet breeds and the longevity that they have? Well, joining us now for more on this is Dr. Dan O'Neill, an associate professor in companion animal epidemiology at the Royal Veterinary College. Dr. O'Neill, thanks for being here. Hi, Simi. It's a real pleasure. Good morning to you. What is companion animal epidemiology? Oh, what a great question. Um, Essentially, what it is, is looking at populations of animals, so large groups, hundreds, thousands, millions of companion animals, dogs, cats, rabbits, and um, identifying information from the population. So how long they live, the most popular breed, the, the average size of each breed in kilograms. Okay, so if we want to keep our dog with us for as long as possible, Dr. O'Neill, what dog lives the longest? So from, we've just published a paper last week on this looking at um, the longevity of dogs in the UK using a project called Vet Compass. We have over 10 million dogs in the UK in that project. And the winner, the out-and-out winner, if your listeners want a long-lived dog, is the Jack Russell Terrier from the common breeds in the UK. And how long are we talking here? So the Jack Russell Terrier, on average, lived to 12.7 years. So, and that's, that's like way longer than some of the breeds that lived really short lives. And what were some of those breeds, the ones that lived really short lives? Well, the remarkable thing was when we looked across the, the types of dogs and how long they lived, there was a dramatic difference between them. The ones that lived the shortest length of time tended to be the ones with very extreme body shapes. So the shortest lived was the French Bulldog, 4.5 years, English Bulldog, 7.4 years, Pug, 7.7 years. And these are hugely popular breeds. In the UK right now, the French Bulldog is the most common puppy being born and bought. You know, I was thinking that as you said that, that it's very popular here in North America too. It seems to be growing in popularity. Seven years, Dr. O'Neill, that's like a drop in the bucket. That's, that doesn't seem very long at all. That doesn't seem very long at all, exactly. And it's, it's, it, with lifespan, um, it's a very useful proxy measure of overall health. So that's, that's what's used regularly in human populations. So in the UK, we have a census every three years. In the US, I think you have a census every one year. Um, uh, these are used as measures of overall population health. So we can use the same in dogs. So if we have one dog breed that lives to 12 years and another that lives to seven years, it is quite a logical assumption to say, well, hey, there must be some serious health problems with the breed that's only making it to seven years. Right. Okay. So now I have two Labrador retrievers, Dr. O'Neill. What can I expect? Oh, you're going to do quite well with them because they, they live longer than the average. They're 11.8 years, and the average is about 11.2 across all dogs. So you're on the right side of destiny. Your dogs are going to be around with you for a long time. Oh, I certainly hope so. That's the thing. They become members of our family, don't they? And yet it seems to be on the whole of things. We only have them in our lives for a too short period of time. Yeah, it's an interesting concept, actually, because... 
if you think about it, even when their time on this mortal coil is gone, the dogs stay with you. I still remember my very first dog. That was a Jack Russell Terrier called Sandy, and she's still with me. And it's like 45 years later after she died. So actually, if they have a very good life, they're very healthy, and they become very dear to you, they will stay with you forever. The trick is making the decision before you buy your dog to buy a dog with good innate health. So that means the natural tendency to live a long life. And the key to that seems to be picking a type of dog that doesn't have an extreme conformation. So avoiding dogs with extreme flat faces or very short legs or very wrinkled skin or maybe having no tail where their spine is shortened. So, so we, we as humans can decide on getting a dog that lives a longer, happier and healthier life. So oh. it's really in our hands. So interesting. Dr. O'Neill, thank you for that this morning. It's been a real pleasure, and uh, yeah. I hope you and your listeners have a really good day. I hope, I hope you do, too. That was absolutely fascinating. I learned so much. I'm going to go home and talk to my family about that one. That's Dr. Dan O'Neill, Associate Professor in Companion Animal Epidemiology at the Royal Veterinary College in the UK, has done a very comprehensive look at which dog breeds live the longest. Now, if you want to weigh in, tell me about your dog. Of course, I would love to hear and see pictures of your dog, Simi at CKNW.com. The Office of the Seniors Advocate here in BC wants to hear from you. The office is launching its second province-wide survey. So what do they want to hear about? Let's find out. Isabel McKenzie joins us now, BC's Seniors Advocate. Thanks for being back with us. My pleasure. Good morning. Now let's talk about this survey. What is it? Well, this is our second survey reaching out to all the residents who live in all publicly funded long-term care sites in BC. So that's about 30,000 people in about 300 sites across the province. And we're also reaching out to their family members. And we're asking them again, uh, what is it like for you living in long-term care? We're asking them about their quality of life. So uh, are you finding you're getting the care and support you need physically, emotionally? Are you finding the environment uh, is suiting your needs? Are you finding the food Uh, is suiting your needs. What are the things that are working well and what are the things that we can improve? And we did this five years ago. Uh, It was a landmark survey at the time, first of its kind in Canada, and it provided some very, very uh, good information. And we're going back now and seeing how have things changed, where have they improved, uh, where do we still have some work to do. And so how significant was that last survey that was done, though? What was the information used for? Well, there were some interesting findings and I think some findings that confirmed uh, what we intuitively knew. So um, overwhelmingly, residents say, I feel safe where I'm living. I feel the staff are competent and caring. I don't think there's enough of them. That wasn't a surprise. I think that confirmed what we knew. Uh, And we've built on that with more staffing since the last survey. There were some interesting things, uh, Simi. So the biggest, largest complaint uh, of residents was I don't get to bathe as often as I want and when I want. Um, Even people who uh, rated their experience very highly in most other areas still felt I don't get to bathe as frequently and and, uh, when I want. The food was interesting. I think many of us were expecting the food to bring a lot of complaints. Um, And there were some about, you know, the 
I don't get to eat what I want and, you know, it's not hot enough. But the largest complaint actually about the food was I don't get to eat when I want. Um, Followed actually by um, I need help eating and there isn't always somebody to help me uh, when I need to eat. That really speaks to me that about the emotional needs, I would say, of people who are in long-term care. Is it that choice of having to be able to take a bath when they want or eating when they want? That's, that's important. It is. And, this, this, and I don't think we've paid enough attention to it. And I think that was very clear, actually, in how we treated family visits during the pandemic, that we, we didn't acknowledge this emotional uh, or we sometimes call it psychosocial needs of, of the people, and they're as profound, if not more, than their uh, clinical needs, certainly in long-term care. Because there's this thread, for want of a better term, it's about autonomy. So when you ask people, they don't get to get up when they want. They don't get to eat when they want. There wasn't a uh, somebody to talk to that, that knew about their experiences. Nobody was asking them their opinion. There weren't meaningful activities. The, the things about improving, you know, the quality of life are less about, ironically, the things we focus on. We focus on reducing falls and we focus on, you know, those medication errors, those things we can measure in very clinical ways because that's what our system's attuned to. But we're forgetting people living in long-term care aren't going there to be fixed and cured like they go to hospitals. And yet we, we tend to to look through the same lens when we want to assess are we doing well. People are going to live in long-term care to live out the final couple of years or, or months of their life with dignity, with comfort, uh, and with the things that bring meaning to them. And that's what I think this survey certainly taught us last time. And we'll see how we've built on it. Uh, when we go ask and out pe- uh, ask people this time, and are we giving long term care residents enough to do in terms of activities to keep them stimulated and interested in doing things? Well, when you ask them, uh, some people think we are, uh, but about half the people think we aren't. And you know, one of the things that I think that the residents are getting to the heart of when they're telling us about their experience, Cindy, is this issue. And I've spoken about this before and I've reflected on it because I've been around for a long time. And I can remember, you know, 25, 30 years ago when we decided that we're going to create this thing called uh, complex care and we're going to eliminate intermediate care. And it was all about, you know, somebody uh, should only have to move once if their care needs increase. We don't have to have them. And we all thought it was a great idea, myself included. But here we are 25 or 30 years later And here's the unintended consequence. We've grouped people together, take a care home with 100 people. The variety of needs of those 100 people is quite significant and the experiences in the backgrounds. So you'll have people um, who are still fairly mobile. They don't need to be in a wheelchair. Um, they, They still have the ability to know what's going on around them, to have meaningful conversations. And they're in the same facility as someone who is unresponsive and has and so I think we need to think about the the impact this is having on everybody that's living there if you're trying to find an activity that's going to suit everybody of of those hundred people you're not going to be able to do it because what the, the the sort of the high needs person 
is going to be able to participate in is not going to be the same right. kind of thing that's going to bring meaning to somebody who still has quite a, a, a significant amount of ability. And wouldn't you say, Isabel, that all of these things that we're talking about here, just that simple idea of choice and different activities, don't don't these result in people living longer, happier lives and situations? They do. And I think, you know, part of... Um, we have to also deal with the reality of commun- communal living. There is a reality of uh, routine of communal living you can't get away from, right? You have to have a period of time when people come to the dining room and you have your, your serving of, of your breakfast, your lunch, and your dinner. There, there's an element of that. We can customize it a little bit and nip around at the edges, but there is a reality to routine um, that suits some people and doesn't suit other people. So I think we also, you know, when you when you back it up a bit, I think this also reinforces that we need alternatives to long-term care for those people for whom being in a situation where there's routine isn't going to be fulfilling for them. There's people, you know, there's people out there, they get up every morning at the same time, they jump out of bed, they, you know get fully dressed, run down, have a full break. They, 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 they love routine and they'll adapt well. But there's other people for whom mm-hmm. that isn't what they like. Those people are going to struggle in a, uh, uh, a routine like you have to have in a facility with 100 people. So I think we also have to say, okay, what are the alternatives? And we're also looking, um, we're just uh, finishing up a uh, another report on on a, a second report actually on the state of our home home care home support system in BC, because I think there are some real opportunities there to still support some people, not all people, but some people right. who could who could still live in a more um, autonomous situation uh, before they go into long term care, and and they'd be happier there. Mm-hmm. Isabel, thank you so much for talking to us about it this morning. My pleasure. Thank you for your interest. That's Isabel McKenzie, BC Seniors Advocate. So you can see why it's so important to take part in this survey. And you can do that by going to the website surveybcseniors.org. Or you can call the Office of the Seniors Advocate to get more information on that. You know who's probably feeling pretty good today? Our next guest, that is the coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps, Vanny Saratini, who had a pretty good week. Don't you think, coach? Yes, good morning, <laughs> How are you doing today? Yeah. Let's start with the win last Sunday. This is the one against Toronto. So what happened? How did that happen? Well, we played very well. We um, It was a very good game. It was a very open game. The other team also had uh, a couple of uh, um, good chances, but we, uh, we managed at the end of... Uh, uh, not quit during the game, keep the intensity high, and we scored at the last minute. It was uh, was really beautiful, yeah. And what did that do for the team's confidence at that point then after that game? Yeah, it means a lot because, uh, <clears throat> um, you know, we, we came from uh, from three defeats and uh, it, it gave us the possibility to really, I would say, change the page and start... Uh, uh, a new period. Uh, let's hope with uh, with with some other victories, and that's what's happening on Wednesday too. Yes. Yeah, so there's a rare kind of midweek game here for the Canadian Championship, and another win over Valor FC. So what was the key here? Well, 
Uh, Valor is a, a team of uh, the CPL that is kind of the lower league. And uh, the, the key was to keep the, com- the, com- the concentration high and don't treat this game like an easy game. And the, ga- and the guys were very good at that. We took care of the business on the first half. And uh, we were also able to spare some energy because tomorrow we have another game. It's a very, very, very hectic week. <laughs> okay, so who's coming into town tomorrow? What do we have? We have San Jose. Uh, we have San Jose tomorrow. It's, uh, it's a hard game. They're in a good moment. Uh, they won two of the last three games. So it's going to be uh, a nice game to watch if uh, your listeners want to come to the, to the stadium and, and support us. And, <laughs> of course but, we do. <laughs> uh, but, also, but also very hard uh, for us to get the three points, but we can do it. Of course we want to come and support the team. So how, how's the team feeling then? So have, is there a change, would you say, in energy in the locker room? Yes, of course. Uh, winning helps a lot. And uh, the two weeks that we spent without working, without playing, uh, we worked a lot on our way of playing. We worked a lot on being honest with each other, with uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, individual conversation. So there's a very good mood. There's a lot of intensity at training. So uh, it seems that we're going in the right direction. Okay. And now that's good because you're going to be very busy because you're playing again <laughs> midweek next week, right? Yeah. 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 When we're going to talk again next Friday, it's another two games. So hopefully it's the same talk of today. So do we. <laughs> after two wins. So is, that, is that positive or is that negative? Like, does that keep the team, do you think, like engaged and rolling? And, or is that, are you concerned about them being tired? Well, both, but I like actually when we have a lot of games uh, back to back to back because uh, uh, it keeps the concentration always very high. Uh, it gives me the possibility to do rotation in the starting 11 so everyone feels uh, part of the uh, kind of the project and uh, in case let's say touching wood in case one game is not going well there's a, an immediate uh, chance to, to get back and win so right. uh, I think actually that uh, we are designed more for that kind of period when we have a lot of games than when we have a, one game per week also I love that you just said touch wood are you superstitious a little bit, a little. Bit. Well, I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm a little suspicious, like like uh, they say, Michael Scott said in the office. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, good luck this weekend, Coach. We'll talk to you next Friday. Okay, okay. thank you. <laughs> that is Benny Zartini, head coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. They play the San Jose Earthquakes uh, tomorrow, so on Saturday, and then they have another midweek game coming up there next Wednesday, the 18th against FC Dallas. I know busy, busy schedule, but let's hope they stay on that roll that they have been. On. It is a story that just keeps on having twists and turns. What started as a homicide caught on tape in Thailand has developed into even more questions about a plane crash in Ontario. We've been keeping track of all of the developments through the hard work of Kim Bolin, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun, and she joins us now with an update. Good morning, Kim. Good morning, Simi. Now, last time we talked, I remember you said you had still had more questions about the pilot of this small plane. What have you learned? 
Well, I broke a story earlier this week that a complaint had been laid against him in December uh, with Transport Canada by another pilot. Uh, This other pilot, Azam Azami, had seen someone advertising charter flights and air taxi service on uh, Facebook Marketplace, of all places. And he engaged in a conversation with this other pilot. It was uh, the pilot who died on the plane, Abby Handa. Uh, and he started sort of questioning him about his rates, you know, pretending to be a customer at first. But then he drilled down and said, hey, look, I'm a pilot and a, and a flight instructor, and I don't think you have the right uh, licenses and authorizations to be doing charters, and I'm going to complain about you. Uh, so the conversation got very heated. It was all online, and uh, uh, the second pilot, Mr. Azami, gave me a copy of that conversation, as well as his complaint uh, that he laid with uh, Transport Canada about what he believed were unauthorized charter flights. Uh, so I did that story, and a day later, Transport Canada confirmed, in fact, uh, that the pilot, Mr. Handa, did not have the right license to be doing charters. He was on a private plane. You can't use a private plane uh, that's not you know, registered to a commercial enterprise uh, for charter flights. So it's sort of another piece of the puzzle in that this was not a legitimate flight uh, that these four people, the two fugitives and the two young pilots, lost their life on, okay. uh, on so April 29th. If, if as you reported then that Transport Canada had this complaint, uh, late last year, what happened as a result? How is this person still flying? Well, that's the big question. Uh, they haven't told us that yet. They did say to me that uh, they jumped on it right away and were investigating and that the investigation is ongoing, right? So I suppose they'll say they didn't reach any conclusions. But meanwhile, this fellow has continued to fly. And uh, we know about these two fugitives. Have there been others? We don't know that uh, at this point in time. He was operating the service out of the Boundary Bay Airport. I've uh, had the president of the Boundary Bay Airport hang up on me this week. Uh, she doesn't want to answer any questions about this. I mean, I would understand if she's unable to at this point in time. Uh, but you've got to wonder, you know, is this the only young pilot who's exactly. uh, flying flights he shouldn't be flying out of a regional airport? And, uh, you know, we need answers. I yeah, where are the checks and balances that. on that? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And what else has gone on uh, that no one has paid attention to until now? Right, and you've also learned more in your latest story about what one of the passengers had been telling friends recently. Yes, Jean Larkamp, who of course was charged with the murder in Thailand of former BC gangster Jimmy Sandu, his friends are very perplexed about this situation. They're also grieving the loss of a friend. He had a very small but close-knit group of former military buddies. They were in regular communication in their WhatsApp chat group, and uh, one friend that I talked to who thought of him as a best friend, basically, uh, talked to him weekly on the phone. So they didn't understand how he could have ended up, you know, being hired by criminals potentially to go and do a murder in Thailand. Uh, It's very confusing for them. He told those friends before he left that he had a job for a private military company overseas and that he'd be gone for about a month and uh, he'd be in touch when he got back. And this was the period that he was in Thailand and ended up doing this, this murder. Uh, they also said that one of them talked to him, one of the close friends, when he got back and he said it went fine. Uh, this was a very short conversation. They weren't sure where he was exactly. They presumed he was back in Canada, back in Trail, where he owned a home. 
Uh, but now, of course, they're reflecting on that. Uh, this uh, friend said that, you know, he served with him. He went through basic training with him, uh, that Larkamp was trained as a sniper. Uh, so he ironically had training from the Canadian government on how to do the job that he ended up doing, if guilty, in Thailand. Uh, so this friend also said that he's replayed the video of the actual hit because it was released by uh, Thai police over and over. And while he sort of recognizes the, the movement of one of the people as being his close friend because they knew each other that well that he could recognize his body movement, uh, he said that it was so sloppy for someone that was a trained professional. Yeah. And that really surprised him. And he thought that his head just wasn't in it if he had been hired to do that job. So, and the friends, they weren't able to contact him after, right? They, they, he said he'd no, get back in touch. they were all trying. Yeah. They were all trying. Once his name was released as a suspect in an international murder plot, you know, they were shocked. But they still, it was their guy, and they wanted to find out what was going on, how he was. Uh, you know, they were waiting, as he said, for literally that knock on the door to see if he would show up, right? They were desperate to talk to him, and he said the, the knock never came, the calls never came. Uh, so... Some of them are still in disbelief that he actually died. Apparently, he was uh, a skillful parachuter. So, you know, there, of course, uh, you know, I believe he's dead. I'm not, I don't want to, you know, put something out there that I don't think is true. But I understand how, you know, friends want more answers. And then to have, you know, they were already, you know, kind of freaking out about all the allegations against their friend. And then suddenly he dies mysteriously in a plane crash. You know, uh, you can understand why they're asking a lot of questions and, and are very upset about the situation. Yeah. They also said he was a very generous person, you know, very closed off. You know, he had some issues, especially after a longtime girlfriend left him who had been living and raising dogs with him in trail. He was very negative on relationships, you know, would say things that sort of surprised them in the last few years. But they also said he kind of had a heart of gold and, you know, they gave the right. example of, you know, one of his puppies, and he was a breeder who was trying to make money from the dogs, was born with a serious medical issue. And everyone said, you got to put the dog down because this is going to bring down the reputation of your breeding business. And he said, no, it's a living thing. And he kept this sort of disabled puppy uh, that was somewhat lame, you know, until he died. Wow, I know. That story that you've got with all his friends talking about him, what a different picture is portrayed there. Kim, thank you so much for that. Anytime. Appreciate that. That's Kim Bolin, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Read her latest story at VancouverSun.com. And this is about the ongoing investigation into this accused hitman. Hit happened in Thailand. He lives in BC. Kim has been on the trail of this. A lot of discussion with his friends now and how they just, they can't believe what they've been reading and hearing about over the last couple of months. Check it out. Vancouver Sun. Up next, gas prices. What next? We're expecting... Well, I hope you don't have to get gas this weekend. I had to this morning and I filled up at 214.9 and it turns out, I guess I kind of got a deal. Joining us now is Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, it sounds like I did get some kind of a deal. You did. Imagine uh, going back a year or six months and saying, I feel good about paying 214 for a litre of gasoline. Yeah, no, that doesn't even compute for me. So what's going to happen this weekend, Dan? <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, it's not going to compute because the uh, the price tomorrow is going up uh, nine. Sorry, it's going up uh, from two twenty one point nine up to two twenty seven point nine. So a six cent increase. 
Uh, and if that weren't enough, it looks like a three to four cent increase uh, coming on Sunday, unless the markets reverse in the next hour or so. Um, we're going to be over 230 a liter. Why? For gasoline here in Vancouver. Uh, tightness in supply, weakness in the Canadian dollar. And, uh, you know, uh, when you've got... Uh, when you've got a significant basis on which to push these prices up, heavy taxes, uh, you know, it doesn't help. So, I mean, uh, it, it gets to the point, Simi, where talking about taxes and government policies and those who want these prices to be much higher, you've got your wish. But, you know, at, at some stage, at some point, I think reality is going to start to set in that uh, we need to produce more uh, things that people have but- said they can do with less of. But Dan, at the same time, we hear about record profits for these companies, and yet the price of oil is not nearly what it was when you know we had lower gas prices. So, so there's yeah. something else going on here too. Yeah, there is. And when you tell them they can't produce anymore, you can they only have what they have. You just made that product that much more expensive. It's like saying, look. I'm the only one with a water reserve in the middle of the desert. Uh, but you, I don't want you to pump or drill any more of that water. Therefore, uh, those who have it are going to make a lot more money. We've created the conditions. Not only are we making them wealthy, we're also uh, making a lot of others uh, with alternatives that much wealthier. I, I just don't think this is going to work. I think we need to get, uh, get back to reality, that we need to you know, produce more crude for the world. We need to build more pipelines to get that crude to the world. And uh, if not then we're going to face an economic perdition on a scale which we've never uh, we, we've never we've never experienced and so Those- unless people can uh, can afford 250 255 260 per liter of gasoline uh, i think we're headed for headed for some tough times so just to recap though that for by the end of this weekend what do you think the price is going to be so, yeah, i think we're going to be 231.9 on sunday that hurts okay dan thank you for that this morning yeah. Sorry for the bad news. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. We'll see what happens. Uh, that is Dan McTague, who is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. You heard that prediction there. So guess what we're going to be talking about on Monday? Yeah, gas prices, if that is actually what happens. Let's hear from you on this. What are you cutting out to make room for that kind of money, to have to spend that kind of money? Simi at cknw.com. We are gearing up for wildfire season this year, and that's good considering how unbelievably destructive fires were to our province last season. So what kind of supports can we expect? And is the federal government being more proactive this year in dealing with that? Well, for more on all of that, we are joined now by Patty Hady, who's the Federal Minister of Indigenous Services. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here in your beautiful province. Oh, well, we say that. You're lucky the sun is shining today. That's all I'm going to say. It has not been the case. It was a little cold and rainy yesterday. I came from Ottawa where it was beautiful and sunny to the rainy BC coast. But listen, it's a gorgeous province, and I'm happy to be here to talk about protecting um, the the forests and, and uh, you know, the beautiful uh, region from the devastation of fires, as you said in your opening remarks. Yeah, it was a really tough year last year. So what what is different this year, this season, uh, Minister Haydu, in in the federal government's approach to dealing with this? Well, there has been a lot of work that's happened over the last several months. And I think one of the biggest um, new approaches is a true tripartite relationship with the province of BC, the federal government, and indeed Indigenous leaders and organizations at the table planning together. And I think that was one of the biggest lessons learned, um, sadly, and really should have been a lesson learned a long time ago, is that Indigenous people, first of all, have a lot of um, uh, knowledge about how to protect 
um, regions, how to how to protect against the devastation of wildfires, and what should happen when there is a wildfire. And their their knowledge and their experiences were not being included in either the provincial or the federal planning. So. Um, the agreement to have First Nations leadership at the table to do this planning and to prepare for this year's season, I think, is a game changer. And so what kind of a difference do you think that will make then? Is it, is it is about getting more information to the communities? It's about two or three things, I would say. First of all, yes, it's about making sure that people have information right away as that information is being gathered. It's about using Indigenous knowledge in some of the planning that can help protect regions or or prevent the kinds of out-of-control fires that, that we've seen. And it's also about um, ensuring that uh, people have the information and the resources they need as the fire season approaches that in a way that's going to be, uh, um, uh, in a way that allows them to usefully um, respond in really urgent timeframes. I think one of the challenges that we've heard repeatedly from Indigenous communities in particular is that they were not kept abreast of what was happening. They didn't necessarily have access to rapid resources or information to be able to respond, and that their uh, their historical, their, their knowledge about the region was discounted by um, planners from, you know, over multiple successions of government. So this is a real game changer, as I said, because it does incorporate Indigenous knowledge, incorporate Indigenous autonomy and determination and how, uh, how we can respond. Now, I know you have an announcement coming up this morning, along with Minister Bill Blair and others. And I know you can't tell us exactly what that is. But can you give us an idea of kind of what kind of work has been going on behind the scenes, as you said, to get these conversations going? Well, first of all, I do want to congratulate the province of British Columbia. You know, uh, when um, Minister Murray Rankin and I met uh, when I was first appointed just after the, the devastation of the fire season last year, he really quickly agreed to uh, this approach to incorporate Indigenous leadership at the, the, the highest planning levels um, possible. And so that uh, is part of the announcement to talk about the success and the, and, and the agreements that have been developed through that incorporation of Indigenous leadership. I think the other piece is just a significant contribution that Mr. Blair will speak about towards preparing communities with um, uh, additional firefighters and traditional knowledge keepers that can help um, manage fire. And, you know, we're hoping that this model here in BC is a model that we'll see replicated across the country with other provinces and territories, because, of course, fires are just one of the symptoms of a rapidly changing climate. As you know, we are seeing historic floods in Manitoba, in Alberta, uh, in parts of Ontario. And so this is a this is an ongoing problem. And really, it's collaboration that is going to get us through this difficult time. So is this a long term planning situation now, would you say? Because it feels like for the longest time with wildfires, we've just kind of waited to see what kind of year it's going to be and then deal with it. It is, it is, I think, increasingly important that uh, all at all levels of government, we're turning our heads and our minds to not just trying to prevent climate change, which obviously we need to keep going on, but re- responding to the climate change that we're seeing and the devastation that is wreaking in parts of our country. You know, no part of the country is immune. And I think that 
partnership with Indigenous peoples, uh, a connection with, of course, um, uh, you know, natural resources, the Minister of Environment, making sure that our, our adaptability planning is strengthened and, and that we invest in, um, you know, the kinds of uh, activities that can actually help communities adjust and adapt is critically important as well. We can't pretend that climate change is not happening. And communities closest to uh, where, you know, where, where we're seeing those kinds of impacts, fires, floods, are often Indigenous communities, and they often have historical knowledge about how to protect territory, how to protect communities, and that knowledge uh, is going to strengthen, I think, our country's response. So what can all communities expect? If they're, if they're in the path of a wildfire or if they're in an area where they can probably expect to see some fire activity, what can they expect from the federal government? Well, uh, first of all, um, multiple departments working on this issue together and much more tightly collaborating to make sure that we don't have barriers to the kinds of activities that communities want to pursue to protect themselves. I think they can also see much more rapid support financially to communities, whether they be Indigenous or not, to um, respond to uh, threats as they emerge. And, of course, uh, much more collaboration so that we have uh, a much better sense of who's doing what where and that we don't have duplications or uh, huge gaps in our response. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you very much for the interview. That is Patty Haiti, who's the Federal Minister of Indigenous Services. And as you heard, she is out here uh, in BC right now. And you know what? She's not the only one. So there's a big announcement happening this morning with Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, Bill Blair, Patty Haidu. And they're all going to be at the uh, Discovery Naval Reserve in Vancouver. And they're joined by a whole lot of other provincial politicians and locals as well. Mike Farnworth is going to be there, who's the BC Minister of Public Safety and the Deputy Premier. Uh, let's see, you're going to have the First Nations Emergency Services Society and others. Like, There's a lot of people who are going to be there, which makes me think that there's going to be a discussion here about a, an agreement, perhaps, with the different levels of government and how to fight wildfires this upcoming season, which, you know, planning for that is always good. It's a bit ironic that they are going to be planning for that on a day like today when we're hearing from meteorologists that the spring that we have had so far is one of the coldest that we have had on record. In fact, yesterday, how cold was that yesterday? I couldn't believe how chilly it was. I almost put the fireplace on because that's how cold it was out there. So experts have said that many cities actually around Metro Vancouver saw uh, some record-breaking below-normal temperatures over the last couple of days. In fact, yesterday alone, yesterday afternoon, which is exactly the time period that I'm talking about here, uh, something like a dozen records were set across the south coast. Low temperatures, that would be like expecting a certain high. The high that we had yesterday was among the lowest that we have seen in decades. So I know you're going to be hearing more about that today, but that was not your imagination. Yesterday was a cold day. And yet we still have to plan ahead for wildfire season.